Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, June 1st. Happy summer, everybody. Today, we are doing something special. My colleagues Dylan Byers and Bill Cohan will be speaking about the recent merger between NBC Universal and EA that didn't happen. Bill and Dylan wrote a piece about the saga together, and today, they'll dive in. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Hey, Bill, how you doing? Hey, Dylan. Bill, my illustrious colleague, William D. Cohen. We've been discussing media M&A a lot this week. Very vital topic. It is a vital topic. This is, this is actually the thing I, that excites me the most, because... There's obviously an ebb and flow of times of consolidation and times of less consolidation, but it feels to me like over the grand course of history, the long trend is that the media industry is constantly moving toward more and more consolidation. And I have so many thoughts, but more questions about where some of these companies end up. And of course, the thing we've been discussing, you and me a lot this week is the news that I got last week that Comcast, Brian Roberts, had made a pitch to Electronic Arts to what would have effectively been to spin off NBC Universal, merge it with the video game company, uh, maintain control of it, but let it be run by Andrew Wilson, the CEO of Electronic Arts. And that deal fell through. My understanding now as of this week is it fell through in part because of a disagreement over price. EA's stock went up, the premium margin got lower, but EA wanted a higher 
price for a higher premium. And Brian Roberts was steadfast. The price is the price and it didn't work out. I'm also told that Andrew Wilson didn't impress everyone on the Comcast NBC Universal side in his sort of pitch for what the future combined entity would look like. Whatever the case, this all speaks to the fact that as much as Brian Roberts likes to say that he's comfortable with where his company is at, that there is desire for scale. There is desire to get into gaming or another growth business. And that questions about what is NBC Universal if it doesn't get tied up with something else or if it doesn't acquire something else. Because the streaming service, of course, is not really in the conversation the way the Netflixes and the HBO Maxes are. And I sort of feel like everything about that EA conversation suggests that a move needs to be made on Brian Roberts' part. Is that your feeling as well? Well, I just find it so fascinating. There are just some companies for which enough is never seems to be enough. Comcast market cap is $200 billion. I think it's more than Disney's at the moment. And it's way more than Netflix's, which is down around 80. I mean, if we're talking about a streaming hole, Dylan, because Peacock just isn't strutting its stuff, why not buy Netflix? I mean, that would solve Brian's streaming problem. I mean, EA Sports isn't going to solve Brian's streaming problem if that's what he thinks the problem is. Netflix is a huge bargain right now. Now, I know, you know, the sentiment is turned against it, but if you have 220 million subscribers paying $15 a month, that is something like 20 billion of EBITDA. It's trading at uh, four times EBITDA or something like that. I mean, hello, uh, this is a huge uh, opportunity. And, you know, uh, I don't know whether Reed Hastings would sell Netflix or not, but he's owned it a while. He's made his pile. He and Ted have proved kind of everything they need to prove. Obviously, he'd rather sell it at $300 a share than $80 a share. But maybe if he sells it for Comcast stock, he can ride that stock up. I think that disagreements over price and an M&A negotiation are eminently resolvable. What I worry about more, and I don't know whether you're you have any thought about this is Jeff Shell not being in charge of NBCU. That seems to me like a bigger issue. I mean, what can they give Jeff Shell to make him happy that he's no longer running NBCU? Right. I think both sides at the moment are like to say that it's neither here nor there because nothing came of it. But Jeff Shell was involved with these talks and these negotiations. And my understanding is that he would have effectively been kicked upstairs to a different corporate role with Comcast. I have no idea what that would be or what that would look like. That sounds to me like your conflict, like your deal killer. If Jeff Shell, I mean, who's in charge of NBCU, it's a very big job, right? I mean, it's like if Steve Burke were at head of NBCU instead of Jeff Shell, his predecessor. And this was being sort of conceptualized in and around Steve Burke. Oh, yeah, we'll kick you upstairs. That, to me, sounds like, at least in the short run, why a deal may have fallen apart. It very well could be. I, and I do think that, more generally, 
there would be some concern about whether Andrew Wilson could run NBC Universal combined with EA and what that would mean for a lot of the legacy businesses and brands that NBC Universal has. Now, I will say during the course of the reporting, another thing that I found out was that Andrew Wilson was someone who Bob Iger wanted to be at the head of ESPN back after John Skipper left. So it seems like there is at least enough faith in Andrew Wilson's leadership among the smartest minds of media business. But that said, running ESPN is a very different beast than running an NBC Universal combined with Electronic Arts. The thing I know is that deals fall apart for multiple reasons, and that here, at least pricing was an issue. But also, I think the issue of control and leadership was an issue. My guess is that there was probably a bit of hesitation over giving the entire company to Andrew Wilson. And then, like you said, what that would have meant for Jeff Shaw. Yeah, he's an outsider. Comcast doesn't really do outsiders very well. Right. What's been the reaction from EA and Comcast and others to your story? A couple of things. One is that as much as this was sort of this idea was something that Brian Roberts was pushing for, it's clear that EA has been out there selling itself. The way the EA side always likes to think about it is, is not that they would just sell themselves to someone, but that they would want to get involved in some sort of deal that would be a merger where they would continue to have control and power. One idea that has come up is, does Disney spin off ESPN and combine it with Electronic Arts? There's a lot of obvious synergy there. But there is really a sense that since Microsoft made the Activision deal, that Electronic Arts is like, okay, the interest in gaming is hot. Now's the time to strike. Everyone's hungry for games. That's largely the feedback I get. And then other than that, just this idea about what can Brian Roberts do when all of this stuff is flying off the shelf? He didn't get Fox. He didn't get Warner Media. He didn't get Activision. Didn't get Disney. He didn't get, right, right, way back in the day. And so it just feels like if you accept the premise that he needs to buy or scale up in some fashion, it just becomes hard to see what those acquisition targets are. I mean, you know, look at Sherry Redstone and Viacom CBS. A lot of people would like to talk about that. But as you and I both know that, A, that's too complicated because there's too much overlap between the businesses. But then B, it also just doesn't bring enough scale for Comcast. It's a, last time I checked, it's like a 21 market cap. And that's before you get rid of CBS. Right. And you're left with all that Viacom stuff. Exactly. I guess that's a question I would ask you is, what does Sherry do? What are the options for Viacom CBS right now? If you're thinking about a sale three to five, whatever years down the line. Well, I'm sure that Sherry would have liked to have made a sale back when the markets were more robust as opposed to now, even though she just got the Warren Buffett seal of approval, which, you know, kicked the stock up a little but. We're still talking about the low 30s and $21 billion company, which is just doesn't have uh, scale in, uh, at the moment. So how does she balance the fact that she fought so hard to you know, get control of these companies, be in charge? She's the one that gets the invite to the Allen & Company conference. She's the one that calls all the shots. She's got Bob back is she doing what she likes. I mean, I, I know that they feel like they've are in the process of turning things around uh, over there. So maybe there's a need to sort of let it play out a little bit since 
there certainly isn't an obvious uh, buyer right now. You know, aside from this cockamamie idea that I think might be interesting with Apollo, you know, buying the CBS linear television network from Paramount Global. And then if then Brian wants to buy what's left, you know, again, but that's not going to really do much for him. Sherry is too small to play. I mean, she's got a $20 billion market cap and she's got family estate issues. And, you know, she's got children who, you know, waited a long time. She's waited a long time for the payday. So that merchandise has to kind of move, but but of course it can't. So that's the irony there. And if she had left them separate, maybe she would have moved one piece or the other by now. I, I just don't understand the restlessness in Philadelphia. Why can't they just be content with what they've got at the moment? Well, what's funny is they're on the record version of events is we are content, but that is, you know, (laughs) belied by the fact that that they had such serious negotiations with with ea i do like whenever you talk about sherry this that you know how much she enjoys getting the invite to the to the allen and company conference it feels it feels to me like staying in the game is often attractive and and i see these media executives who finally get to the point where they can sell and retire and and live the dream and yet they spent (laughs) they spend that time dreaming about being back in the game and being back at Allen and Company and, and seem to have this sort of feverish desire to stay connected to the action. Yeah, it's called mortality. That's called mortality. Uh, Bill, thank, thank you for you, talking, Dylan. man. It's been a pleasure going through the MA landscape with you this week. We'll have to uh, do it again soon and keep up the great work. You too. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Tina Wynn on her beat right now. Thanks, Peter. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. If you're listening to this right now, you're about to wake up to a wild turn in the David McCormick versus Mehmet Oz drama, cliffhanger, soap opera, what have you. It's been about two weeks since the primary happened. And right now, they're still locked in a recount of maybe about 900 or so votes. The McCormick team filed a lawsuit saying that they believed that certain ballots should be counted, the ones that are undated or have the wrong date written on them, but were still cast. It's the date on the return envelope. That's the big issue or the lack thereof the date. Republican Dave McCormick filed a lawsuit yesterday and he wants the state to count mail-in ballots that are missing the handwritten date on the return envelope. Oz's team plus the Republican National Committee have countered saying, no, those votes are illegal. Those votes are counter to our current law in Pennsylvania. They should not be counted. In a statement tweeted by Oz from his campaign manager, the Oz campaign accused McCormick of, quote, 
following the Democrats' playbook, adding the Oz campaign will oppose McCormick's request for county election boards to, quote, ignore state election law. There is a massive issue surrounding these ballots that have nothing to do with the race. So dial it back a little bit. Back in 2019, this massive voter accessibility law was passed in Pennsylvania that allowed a greater expansion of mail-in balloting. The Republicans weren't a big fan of that, but they did vote it into office. Jokes on them because in 2020, mail-in ballots became one of the sticking points for Republicans and particularly Trump, who was trying to claim that the election was stolen from him. So balloting is a hot topic issue, especially mail-in ballots. Bizarrely enough, one of my uh, sources pointed out that Dave took the Democrats' position on this, which is even if a ballot is filled out kind of incorrectly with like a tiny mistake here or there, it should count because that is one person's vote. And the Republican position that Oz is taking is no, those votes should not count. They are invalid. They are incorrectly filled. It is the responsibility of the person who cast that vote to make sure they got everything right. Normally, I don't think people would be caring this much, but it is a 900 vote difference. And these are about 860 ballots at stake. McCormick and his campaign have launched a request to have hand count of ballots in specific precincts in specific counties, thinking, okay, there's probably a chance we could get like 20 votes here, 30 votes here, a dozen or so. This morning, I thought we would probably come to the end of it since both of the camps went to the Commonwealth Court to plead their case. The judge said, okay, I'll take a look at it. And then a major twist happened right before I reported this podcast. There was another case last year where a guy named David Ritter wanted to toss out these ballots. That case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The lower court ruling on it was, okay, no, those votes should be counted. And then all of a sudden this afternoon, Alito sends out this message going, no, we're going to pause on that decision while we uh, review things up here. So whatever ruling that the lower courts did, just, just, no, just no, that doesn't exist anymore. Now that puts... Team McCormick in a massive bind. What are they supposed to do in this case? How are they going to be able to make the case that they should have their votes counted if the Supreme Court has suddenly Leroy Jenkins its way in saying, hey, by the way, uh, the legal argument that you were hoping to obtain your eventual victory on, nope, that's done. You can't depend on it anymore. We have about a week more left of this, everyone. I didn't promise it would be this dramatic, but this is where we are. I'm sure by the time this podcast is published, there will be another wild twist, which I will write about at Puck.News. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 